Christ Community Church, located at 25th and Thomas Avenue in Portsmouth, Ohio. Christ Community meets on Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 10.30 a.m. For more information, visit www.christcommunity.net or check out our Facebook page. Well, hello again, everyone, and again, thanks for joining the stream. And so we're going to jump in here in just a second to Luke 11. We'll start in verse 14 and work into the first three verses of chapter 12. Um, now, before I get going, I've always found this odd. You know, I've been a Christian now for 23 years. I've been in ministry for 21 years. And the objection that I hear most from people outside the church um, or people who just have a real animosity towards the Christian faith is, ah, the church is full of hypocrites. I hear that over and over again. And I've never understood that because, you know, every place that I know of is filled with hypocrites. I mean, you know, in my bar hopping days, I don't ever remember some guy walking up to a strange girl who he thought was hot to hit on her and walk up and go, you know, hi, my name is Tim, you know. Monty Python reference. My name is Tim, and uh, hey, you know what? I'm uh, barely employed. I live in my mom's basement. I'm driving my dad's truck. Um, I'm shallow. I believe wrestling is, is real, um, and you know, I, I have a temper, and I'm selfish, and you know, I, uh, you know, just, uh, I just don't know anything about you. You may be dumb as a bag of rocks. I just think you look really good, and my intentions are purely physical. Oh, and by the way, I have some kind of fungus on my foot that hasn't been diagnosed yet. You never see that. You never see that kind of honesty and, and, and transparency. What do you see? You see guys telling the biggest lies they can possibly think of to make themselves look good. Is that not hypocrisy? You see it everywhere. It's absolutely everywhere. You see it in politics. You see it in Hollywood. I've never heard anybody go, I don't watch movies. Movies are filled with hypocrites, but Hollywood is as hypocritical as any place I've ever lived. So it's an odd, odd kind of objection to the Christian faith. Um, so, you know, I think all of us are hypocrites to a certain extent. We don't share everything, you know, and we just don't. We can't be that transparent about every single thought that comes into our heads. Everyone's that way. And so... <clears throat> I, I try to be as transparent as, you know, as is appropriate, but I, and I don't watch a whole lot of other ministries, so I don't know if that's, you know, an oddity or if that's, you know, uh, something that most pastors do and that people outside the church just don't, don't recognize it or don't care. But the thing is this, is we're going to see Jesus was staunchly opposed to hypocrisy. And he, he, he spoke about it all the time. And he, he's going to speak about it in, in chapter 11 as we get into it. So, and here's the thing, though. How do you avoid being a hypocrite? How can you be an authentic person, a genuine person, a person of appropriate transparency, where people know that they can trust you? Well, it's interesting. A lot of the studies that I read this week from professional counselors found that Genuine people, honest people, authentic people, people who people respect and trust, have a couple things in common. Here they are. One, they admit their faults. They, they freely admit what they don't know and what they're not good at. 
they graciously speak their mind. They speak their mind, but not in a jerky, condescending way. They listen to others. They really listen to others, even if the person they're listening to, they're convinced, doesn't know what they're talking about, they still will listen to them. They don't judge other people harshly. They understand that there could be all kinds of factors kind of mixing in to that person, you know, just screwing things up or being kind of surly or being kind of brusque, and they understand that. And they respond not to threats or rewards, but to their internal moral code, to be true to thyself, so to speak. They don't try to make people like them. I see this all the time. It's not that they don't want to be liked. It's that they don't bend over backwards to try and get people to like them. And they have thick skin when they're criticized. They understand that they don't do everything right. That goes back to admitting their faults. And if they're being criticized, they take it as constructive criticism on maybe that person is trying to help. Does that describe you? If that doesn't describe you in every way, shape, or form, you're a bit of a hypocrite. Maybe we all are. And Jesus is going to talk about that this morning. Let's jump to 1114 using my own translation, and here we go. And he, that was Jesus, was driving out a demon that had rendered a man mute. And when the demon left the mute man, the man spoke, and the crowd was amazed. But some, and the some are, are the Jewish religious leaders, specifically the Pharisees and the, and the scribes. We've talked about them before. Some of them said, by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, he casts out demons. Beelzebub was another name for Satan. Others tested him, asking for a sign from heaven, but he knew their thoughts, and he said to them, any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and a house divided will fall. If Satan is divided against himself, how can his kingdom stand? Now notice that he calls it a kingdom. He takes Satan very seriously. And he says, I say this because you claim I drive out demons by Beelzebub. Now, if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your followers drive them out? Ouch. So then they will be your judge. But if I drive out demons by the finger of God, that's an Old Testament reference, Daniel, so forth, then among you the kingdom of God has come. Now, remember what the kingdom of God is. Whenever you see the kingdom of God in Luke He's talking about the reign of God in the hearts of individuals loyal to Jesus Christ. They have faith in Jesus Christ. They follow Jesus Christ. They love God. They appreciate his grace. They live in that gratitude. And the people all around the world who fall into that category, that is the kingdom of God. Verse 21. He's talking about demons again here. He says, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger, and he's talking about himself, Jesus says, attacks and defeats him, he strips him of his armor in which he trusted, and he divides up the spoils. He's using battle language. Now notice this, verse 23. Jesus says, he who is not with me is against me, and who does not receive me scatters. Now, aside from the demonic thing there, which we'll pick up again here in a second, 
what Jesus is saying there rubs our culture the wrong way. We live in a pluralistic culture that says that as long as you're a good person, defined rather vaguely, as long as you're a good person, you're okay. As long as some people will say, as long as you're, as Oprah would say, feeding your spirit, whether you're looking to Buddhism or Islam or, or Judaism or, or Christianity or a mishmash, as long as you're feeding your spirit, you're going to be fine. Is that what Jesus says? Nope. Jesus says, you're either with me or you're against me. There is no middle ground. You're either a follower of Jesus Christ or not. Remember, he is God in the flesh. And it's really, really, really foolish to argue with God. God himself is saying there's only one way to me, and it's through Jesus. Nothing else will get you there. And Jesus says this on multiple occasions. Verse 24. When an evil spirit comes out of a person, it travels through the desert seeking rest, but does not find it. That was a common Jewish belief that demons hid out in the wilderness. And you can understand why, because where were the Jews tested when they were rescued from Egypt? The wilderness, a place of testing. Where does Jesus confront Satan? The wilderness. Then it, that means the demon, says, I will return into the place that I left. And when it arrives, it finds a place cleaned and in order. But then it goes and takes seven other spirits, notice this, more wicked than itself, and they go and dwell there. You can, we have seen uh, in Luke and in Matthew and other places where people can be possessed by multiple, multiple demons. And it, what Jesus is saying here is there's actually a hierarchy of demons. There are stronger demons, weaker demons, some demons more evil than other demons. Believe it or not, that's what he's saying. And so it is worse in the end for the man than it was at first. He's saying this, if God gives you grace, a blessing of some kind, maybe he has released you from addiction, maybe he has released you from some other evil, greed, envy, you know, some kind of physical ailment, what Jesus is saying is, if you don't continue to grow toward God in love and gratitude, it's possible to end up even worse than you were before. So pay attention to your heart. Watch your heart, even after receiving grace. Verse 27, as Jesus was saying these things, a woman cried out from the crowd saying, favored is the mother who gave birth to you and nursed you. But Jesus replied, more favored is the one who hears the word of God and obeys. Jesus consistently says this, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Blessed are those who obey me. It's not that obedience earns you salvation. It's that if you've received salvation, you will want to obey. And he is saying that as blessed as Mary was, chosen by God himself, to be the only woman to give birth to God in the flesh. He's saying, somebody who just loves me and obeys me is even more blessed. And blessed means to be in divine favor is what it means. As the crowds increased, now notice this. This is something here. I get a lot of flack for this. A lot of people say, Matt, you, you have too low a view of human nature. 
People are, I had somebody tell me this recently, people are essentially good. They're good people. Well, of course, you have to tell me, how do you define good? The way God defines good, first and foremost, is whether they have faith in Him and seek to obey Him in gratitude out of the grace God has given them. That's how God defines it. And since God gets to judge... And look at what Jesus says here in verse 29. As the crowds increased, he said, this generation is evil. Now, some of your translations may say this generation is is wicked or something like that. Nope, 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 nope. The Greek word is panare. It means evil. It is the exact same word used to describe Satan. In fact, if you just see panare by itself, it means the evil one, Satan. He says, this generation is evil. Remember last week, second time in this chapter, Jesus has said this. When he's teaching the disciples how to pray, he said, even though you are evil. And he's talking to his own disciples. Anyone who rebels against God, God describes as evil. It searches for a sign, but none will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. Now, were they wrong to be looking for a sign saying, Jesus, show me you're not in league with Satan by giving us a sign? Well... Back in Deuteronomy, it does say, and Paul says, in other words, in other places in Scripture, that you are to test to make sure that a person is from God. The problem is, why do they want a sign when Jesus is expelling demons? Jesus is saying, would I be expelling demons if I wasn't working for God? doesn't make any sense, so why do you want another sign? And he says, the only sign you're going to get is the sign of Jonah. Now, he doesn't mean here, three days in the tomb, as Jonah was three days in the belly of the fish. He says in verse 30, For as Jonah was assigned to the Ninevites, so also will the Son of Man be to this generation. You remember the Jonah story? Jonah goes to the Ninevites, who were the enemy of Israel, a brutal people. But God says, go and preach to them to repent, to turn from their ways to me. And so Jonah preaches, and they repent. And that generation, that particular generation of Ninevites, turned to Yahweh, the one true God. And so what's Jesus saying? saying, the only, the only sign from heaven you're going to get here is you better repent, you better turn. What does he mean by that? We'll see here in a second. But there's a reason why he's bringing up the Ninevites and somebody else from a foreign country. Verse 31. The queen of the south, that's the queen of Sheba, if you remember your Old Testament, the queen of Sheba traveled from Ethiopia, which many in Israel considered the end of the world, to visit Solomon because she had heard stories about the wisest man who'd ever lived. So the queen of south will rise at judgment with the men of this generation and will condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to the wisdom of Solomon. And now one greater than Solomon is here. I often hear Christians say this. Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived. Nope. He was the wisest man who ever lived until Jesus came. What is Jesus saying? One greater than Solomon is here. Verse 32, the men of Nineveh will stand up at judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now one greater than Jonah is here. This would have offended them, as it had earlier. Jesus often says, how about those people who are not Israelites, who are not children of Abraham, who repented? And you're not repenting. So who's more favored? They believe because they were children of Abraham, therefore they had divine favor always. And Jesus is saying, no. 
Go back to Genesis 12 and understand what God is doing there. He says, Abraham, your children will become a great nation, but that nation has a mission to bless all other nations. The prophet Isaiah says Israel is called to be a light to the nations, a nation of priests. They, they existed to bring the rest of the world to worship the one true God. Not just to be holy themselves, not just to possess God's blessings and hold them all to themselves, but to preach to others. And they were refusing. As Jesus was standing there, the entire nation of Israel was refusing to do the job God had given them. That's why he's telling them, repent, turn. And this is 33 is directed towards Israel. No one lights a lamp and puts it in a place where it will be hidden or under a bowl instead. They place it on a stand so that those who come can see the light. What's he telling Israel? He's saying, you're supposed to be the light, a light to the nations. And you're wanting to take the light God has given you and put it in a bowl and keep it to yourself. And that's not how it works. Verse 34. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eyes are good, meaning perceptive, understanding. Remember, Jesus says this a lot. Those with ears to hear, eyes to see. What's he saying? Those who truly are looking for the things of God and not just looking at it selfishly. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be filled with light. That's the light of God. But when they are bad, your body is filled with darkness. See to it that the light is in you, not darkness. If therefore your whole body is full of light and no part of it is dark, it will be enlightened as when the light of the lamp shines on you. Now, Jesus there is not saying that. Don't look at evil things, just look at good things. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying to be sectarian or to hide from the world. He's saying that your eyes need to rightly understand the Word of God. You can't be filled with the light of God if you don't understand the Word of God. Verse 37. When Jesus had finished speaking, a Pharisee invited him to eat with him. He went and reclined at the table. That's how they ate. They, they, they kind of laid on what we'd call body pillows, and the table just sat on the floor without legs, and they would eat that way. But the Pharisee was surprised to see that he did not first wash his hands, that being Jesus. Verse 39. Then the Lord said to him, Now, you Pharisees, you clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of greed and, here it is again, evil. Panaras, evil. Fools, he said. Did not the one who made the outside also make the inside? Be the source of compassion within, and everything in you will be clean. But alas, you Pharisees, you tithe even from your spice rack. They did. They, they, they tithe 10% of their salt. I don't know how you do that, but they did it. But you neglect the judgment of God and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter as well as the former. You should have done both is what he's saying. Jesus is not condemning them tithing everything. The Bible says love's a joyful giver. You tithe what you want. But you can tithe all you want if the love of God is not in you, if the discernment of God is not in you, thanks to the Holy Spirit, gets you nowhere. But, oh, you Pharisees, you do love the limelight and attention. You are disastrous. 
because you are like unmarked graves, which men, watch, by the way, that was a nasty comment, a really bad insult in the first century because graves made people unclean. He says people walk over these empty graves without knowing it. And so what Jesus is saying is you're supposed to be leaders of the people. You're supposed to be leading the people to know the word of God and to be out on mission for God. And what you really are just unmarked graves. You're making them unclean through your so-called leadership. And one of the experts in law answered him, Teacher, you are insulting us by saying these things. Duh. Actually, the, the, the Greek there is kind of ambiguous. It can be you're insulting or you're being arrogant. Could you imagine? How arrogant is to tell God he's being arrogant? You see what the problem is. Verse 46, Jesus says, As for you experts in the law, you place on people burdens they can hardly stand, and you yourselves will not lift a finger to help them. You are disastrous because you dig the graves for prophets like your fathers who murdered them. Your behavior shows that you are just like them. They killed the prophets, and you ready the tombs for prophets. Remember, a prophet is someone commissioned by God to speak for God to God's people. What he's saying is in ancient Israel, when a true prophet arose and told them what they didn't want to hear, that they were not close to God, that they were not doing the mission of God, that they needed to get back on track, they typically killed them. And he says, this generation, no different. So God in his wisdom said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and others they will persecute. And this generation will be held responsible for all the blood of the prophets shed since the beginning of the world, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, this generation will be held accountable. For alas, you teachers of the law, because you have taken away the key to knowledge that you yourselves have not used and prevented others from discovering it. Harsh, harsh words for religious leaders, but religious leaders in it for themselves. It's unfortunate. I see this. I have seen ministers train wreck their lives, just completely destroy it out of pure ambition. I do not understand why some ministers want to be stars celebrities within a kingdom all about only one king, Jesus Christ. I don't get it. And I've discovered this, you know, I spent years and years and years working for a a Christian organization, very large Christian organization. I got to know a lot of Christian celebrities. Here's what I found. Preachers who became famous not because they were looking for it, but because the gifts God had given them, they just attracted a large crowd. They tended to be humble. They tended to be consistent. They tended to persevere to the end, people like Billy Graham. Billy Graham wasn't looking for a crowd. They came to him. But the people who I found are looking for a crowd are looking for the limelight, they end up flaming out. 
I, early on in my ministry, I followed a guy by the name of Mark Driscoll and another guy by the name of Rob Bell. One, Rob Bell's in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Another one, Mark Driscoll, was in Seattle, Washington. They both became celebrity pastors. I went to Rob Bell's church in Grand Rapids, a church of about four or 5,000, I think. You'll see 10 or 12 listed in the press. I've been there. It can't even sit, seat that many. They only had two services. And Mark Driscoll had a church of about 15, 20,000 out in Seattle. Mark Driscoll's church was dissolved completely because of abuse and financial irregularities. Rob Bell was asked to resign by his own elders after he just went off the deep end. And he doesn't even go to church last time I checked. I don't understand why some ministers do that. If God wants a minister's word to be heard, trust God to take care of it. Don't go running for it. You choke on your own ambition. That's for sure. And so, Jesus has this telling these leaders that they've become a disaster. And then when Jesus left the Pharisees, verse 53, and the scribes began to fiercely oppose him and pepper him with thoughtless questions, waiting for him to say something that would condemn him. They want to condemn the Son of God because the Son of God does not agree with their interpretation of God's Word. Unreal. And so Jesus is walking away from this dinner party with his disciples, and he, he takes a moment because the crowds start to come. Verse, chapter 12, verse 1, he says, Meanwhile, a crowd of many thousands had gathered, and they were trampling on one another. But first, Jesus spoke to his disciples. He says, Guard yourselves from the yeast of the Pharisees. What he means by that is their core, the seed of corruption that grew within them. Watch yourself. Guard yourself against that hypocrisy. Nothing that someone tries to conceal or hide will stay that way. All the things you say behind closed doors or whisper to others will be announced as if on loudspeakers. What is he saying there? He's saying that you can't hide who you really are from God. God knows it all. God knows it all. And it's not that he won't forgive it if you truly repent, but if you don't repent, And so you can see from this, God does not have a very high view of hypocrisy. He just doesn't. He doesn't like hypocrites. He doesn't want Christians to be hypocrites. Now, again, that doesn't mean that in our transparency, you know, we tell everything in graphic detail to people. And Megan and I have talked about this. I've heard Megan talk to people about this. James, the book of James, written by the brother of Jesus, he, you know, says that we're to confess our sins to each other, but you need to be careful who you pick to do that with, because you don't want to start gossip and all other kinds of somebody you can't trust. You need to find somebody you can trust and confess your sins. Be transparent as much as possible. But how do you do that? How do you get yourself to a place where you can say, okay, I'm going to be honest. I'm going to be honest about my faults. I'm going to be honest about myself. I'm going to, when I look in the mirror, I'm going to see myself as I really am. This is why I say every once in a while you need to do kind of a spiritual audit. 
you kind of look at yourself and say, okay, what am I struggling with? And instead of blaming everyone else, I'm going to say, okay, where, you know, what's going on here? Obviously, it's sin, and it's sin within me. The Bible says temptation does not come from God. It comes from within. I don't care what other factors are out there. At the end of the day, you have to take responsibility for your own sin. Do you like the limelight? Do you like attention? Do you want power or fame? Are you vain? Do you just lust after people liking you? Hmm. Do you just bristle at any criticism? What do you do? How do you avoid being like this? How do you avoid that? I think it starts here. Best I can tell, I think it starts here. First thing, what is the only thing you have that you cannot lose? Can you lose your finances, your financial security? Of course you can. Have you been watching the stock market? Can you lose your health? Of course. Have you seen some of these people on the news who have contracted coronavirus, who didn't think it was a big deal, and the next thing you know, they're in ICU on a ventilator, or they've been placed in a medically induced coma? You can lose your health, no matter what age you are. Lose your family? Of course. People pass away, people move away. What can't you lose? According to the Bible, with Paul writing in Romans 8, the only thing you cannot lose is the love of God. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. That is the only thing you have. And that needs to be your primary focus and ambition in life. To know the love of God, experience the love of God, dwell within the love of God, share the love of God. The love of God should be primary in your life, in your ambition, in your zeal. It should be first and foremost about the love of God. It is the only thing you cannot lose, and it is the only thing that if it fills you up will make you secure enough that you won't be tempted to be a hypocrite. God sees you as you are. He knows every fault. He knows every thought, and he loves you anyway. Anyway, love of God, that's it. It's the love of God, making it primary in your life. I mentioned going to Grand Rapids. I used to go there every once in a while. It's like one of the church capitals of the world. There's just huge churches on every corner in Grand Rapids. And I went to a minister's conference when I was in Grand Rapids many years ago. And the minister who was holding the conference, I didn't really agree with, though I did think he was a very good, you know, communicator. And, it, and the conference was on preaching, so I thought this would be interesting. So I, I went to the conference, spent a couple of days there, and I got to know one of the conference speakers. It just happened to be at a restaurant that I was at one night, and he, I walked in, and he saw that I had a pass to the conference, and he, he waved me over. There was this huge table just filled with people, all from the conference, and this, and this philosopher from Ireland was there speaking. And I didn't agree with a lot of what he said, but I didn't argue with him. I just sat and listened, but he started talking about the lost art of parables. 
You know, Jesus told a lot of parables. We don't tell a lot of parables anymore. And he talked about what a shame that was, and that he was writing a book of parables. I made a little note. I thought, I'm going to keep my eyes open for that. That could be interesting. And about a year later, the book came out. I bought it. I read it. read it in a day. It's not very long. I didn't agree with a lot of the theology behind it, but there was one parable in there that really struck me. And I think it has something to say with what we're doing here. The parable goes like this. There was an old man living in a small village. His son had died in an accident many years before. His wife had died from a disease. He was all alone, lived in a little house, retired from his his profession, spent his days all day in the church building praying, praying for everyone in that village, praying that the kingdom of God would rise and expand, just praying, fasting and praying. And at the end of the day, when it began to get dark, he would go home to his little house. And he went in and was getting ready to prepare to eat his dinner. He had one bowl of soup left in the house. He hadn't been to the market. A bowl of soup, he thought, that'll be good. So he was fixing a bowl of soup and getting ready to lay down at the night, when all of a sudden, there's a knock at the door. So he goes, and he opens the door, as he always did, no matter what time it was. He always opened the door to see who it was. And he opened it up to find a demon, an ugly, foul-smelling demon. And the demon said, may I come in? And the man, because he had been taught that godly people are hospitable and open their home to anyone, some have even entertained angels unaware, said, sure. The demon comes in. The demon says, give me your soup. The old man says, fine. You may have my soup. And he eats the man's only food he has left in the house. And then he turns and he sees a cross on the wall. It's the only thing on the wall, bare walls except for that cross, that crucifix. And the demon says, I want that cross. The old man says, all right. What is it? He said, well, my son made it before he died. He made it for me. Really, the demon said. He got up. He took the cross off the wall. He broke it in two. He said, what do you think of that, old man? What do you think of the fact that I ate only food you had left in the house. The old man said, well, fasting, Jesus says, is good. I'll just fast longer. What do you think that this, I took this crucifix that your late dead son made for you, and I just broke it? Old man said, it's just a thing. It's not him. The demon said, I have one more request of you. The old man said, make your request. Let me into your heart. And the old man said, go wherever you can, wherever you will. And at that, the demon dropped his head and frowned and walked back out into the cold night because he knew the old man's heart was so filled with the love of God, there was no room for anything else. Does that describe you? Doesn't describe me yet. Got some work to do. Not being hypocrites, don't we? Let's pray.
Father God, we thank you for your word, as hard as it can be, for your son who was truly the only purely genuine, authentic person who's ever lived. We pray, dear Lord, that we would focus on your love shown so clearly in the life and death of your son, his resurrection, that because Jesus died on the cross, all of us who who will place our faith in him, our sins are forgiven, and we are able to spend eternity with you that despite the fact that we are sinful and, and we are hypocritical, we all put on false faces, we all try to hide our secret sins, you see them all, you know them all, and yet you love us anyway. Forgive us for not loving you in the same way. Help us to love you more and more each day. May your love be our primary focus in our lives, each and every one of us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, folks, again, thanks for joining us. Next week, we will jump into Luke 12, 4 through 21 in a sermon called Kingdom Investments. A couple things going on this week. As I said, Christ Community Church is trying to do something every day. Uh, to kind of keep us together and, and uh, give us something to do. Uh, tomorrow night at 7 o'clock, I will be on Facebook Live. You can go to my Facebook, Matt Rawlings, uh, in Facebook. You can find me there. And I'll be answering some questions that have been sent in to me. I had a couple questions come in. have time for a couple more because I try to keep it around 30, 35 minutes for an Ask Pastor Matt tomorrow night at 7, uh, Monday night at 7. Zoom. We're using Zoom a lot. And if you don't know how to use Zoom, just reach out to my wife. She is the Zoom expert. Uh, Tuesday night, uh, my wife will be leading uh, the women's devotional and prayer meeting via Zoom at 6.30. On Wednesday night, I will be leading the men's devotional and prayer meeting at 7. On Thursday night, uh, Mom will be leading the women's Bible study via Zoom at 6. And on Friday night, Andrew will be uh, teaching uh, the youth ministry at 7.30 also via Zoom. So all of that is going on, and so you can tune in. Again, if any of you out there, you know, you're listening to this, you want to know more about Christianity, you have questions, Again, please send me an email at pastormattr at yahoo.com. Would love to talk with you. We'll keep it confidential, but would love to. Just got, got an email last night. Happy to do it. Be sure to check um, the bulletins, the Christ Community Church bulletins. We're still producing those, putting them online. They're on Facebook and so forth. The prayer list is there. Be praying for people. There are a lot of people there we need to be praying for. We hope to be together again soon. Sometime in the next three or four weeks, we will hopefully, Lord willing, be back together. Miss you guys. Love you guys. Praying for you guys. God bless you. God goes with you. Focus on his love this week. All right? See you next time. Christ Community Church, located at 25th and Thomas Avenue in Portsmouth, Ohio. Christ Community meets on Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 10.30 a.m. For more information, visit www.christcommunity.net or check out our Facebook page.